You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Now they called it anarchy. The word had become synonymous with chaos, but the true anarchist community was a place of exquisite balance and stability, a society of equals. True, the path to anarchy must be carved through the rubble of the status quo, but birth was never an easy business. Or another analogy, a well-placed device was like a surgeon's blade. It caused pain and shed blood, but it was necessary for healing, a sacrifice for the greater good. And truth to tell, shameful truth, never spoken aloud, never acknowledged even to oneself, but somehow the fingers knew there was a definite frisson of satisfaction in creating a device. Not the deaths themselves, one was not an animal after all, killing for pleasure, but nonetheless there was an element of gratification about making, literally, an impact on society. The hands paused again with amusement, then finished their task. Fingers, slim and deft, tucked the final wire into more pleasing arrangement. Two meditative hands eased the oversized cover shut, feeling the gentle pressure before the minuscule latch hooked into place. Simple, elegant, order through anarchy, life out of death. The hands tidied the workbench, patted the device as if soothing an infant in its cot, then switched off the lights. On the bench, the gilt letters of the spine on the spine of the device caught the light from the corridor as the door swung open, then shut. Book of Common Prayer. Laurie King is the best-selling author of the Mary Russell Sherlock Holmes novels, including Locked Rooms, The Game, and The Art of Detection. Her new novel is Touchstone. Thank you for joining me, Laurie. Thank you. Laurie, when we last spoke, you described this as a country house mystery. (laughs) (laughs) It's really quite a bit more, I think, sinister than a country house mystery ever was. A country house political thriller, perhaps. Yes. uh, uh, Let's talk a little bit about country house mysteries, since we launch from those. Um, This was the golden age of mystery, Dorothy Sayers and Agatha Christie. And these were the very people that American authors, Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler, were rebelling against when they came up with hard-boiled fiction. (laughs) The old ladies versus the young boys, huh? (laughs) Yes. Well, I I think that in a way, um, Agatha Christie and and the rest of them, certainly they never died out. I mean, they've been in print ever since they came into print. So there's always been an awareness of them. And I think a book like Touchstone, which um, draws heavily from both sides. I mean, yes, it's set in a country house. Yes, it has to do with the English aristocracy. Yet the main characters are all boys. They're all men. And the main character is Harris Stuyvesant, who's a you know a hard-fisted cop who works for the Bureau of Investigation, and somebody that I think Raymond Chandler would have recognized if he'd walked down the streets. Sure. That's what I really liked about it was the 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 marriage of two rebelling parts, which of course lends itself to the theme, a book themed with anarchy and <laughs> chaos. <laughs> yes, yeah, the the two the two opposing sides that uh, 
that managed to meet in the middle. One of the things that, that interests me about this book is this, this is another historical mystery. And I, I think more almost than any of your other books, almost every page as I read this, though it's set in a beautifully wrought historical uh, setting, I just think of today every single page I turn. And I think that's a really interesting effect of your writing. <laughs> it's it's not by accident. No, 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 it's not. No, no. It's one of the fascinating things about um, writing historical and, and reading historical fiction, for that matter, <clears throat> is how you can take a um, an event or a um, an area of interest to modern life, and by putting it back 80 years or 100 years, it enables you to look at all sides of it in a way that you can't when you're looking at it now. So that if I'm writing about terrorists, which is one of the one of the themes in this particular book, um, if I'm writing about terrorists in the 21st century, it's got all kinds of baggage attached to it so that you can't really move around it. You can't look at it from all sides. You can't um, see where it came from. It simply is there in your face. Whereas if you take it back and put it into the early 20th century, and terrorism was a thing that came into its own in the late 19th and early 20th century. That's when they really started. Um, you, you can look at it from all sides. You can say, oh, okay, what are these people doing with their terrorist acts that they can't do in other ways? Very difficult question to ask in 2007. Hey. One of the things I think that that's so fascinating is all, all the little bits of, of history that that you unearth in this book and, and give us n nuggets of history because I think today the thing that nobody really wants to talk about and everybody I think is scared beyond their wits of are suicide bombers in the United States. But that wouldn't be new, would it? No. No, it's um, it's not something that's new, and and in fact, one of the uh, one of the things that is mentioned in the book, and you have to realize that while I, while I was writing this book, my son was in Iraq. Um, one of the things that I mentioned in the book is the first IED, improvised explosive device, that was a horse cart driven up to the entrance to J.P. Morgan's bank in New York. And the driver in that case walked away and had obviously a, um, a timed setting to go off at noon, um, exploding his huge load of dynamite, scrap metal, and the cart itself, which blew. It, it was so explosive, it, it, there was nothing left of the horse except its hooves, poor thing. And it killed a number of people. And you can still see the marks on, on the bank building is still there and you can still see them. Um, so that when I'm writing about this, I am, of course, thinking about all the soldiers in Iraq who are driving past the descendants of that particular IED, um, uh, you know, 80 years later. Let's talk about the, the research you did for this book because, well, I guess let's ratchet back a little bit and just give give us an idea of the setup and the setting, what what's going on, where we are when the book starts, and what's going on in England at the time, because it's very fascinating. Well, I've, I've done a lot of work in the 20s. I have a series that <clears throat> is set in part in the 20s. And so I, I've sort of got a background of what's going on there. And in the other series there, um, 
there in 1924, at which time the English government is in the hands of the Labour Party, um, which inaugurated its um, its victory by singing the Marseillaise <laughs> in Parliament, which, which wasn't really, really looked upon with great affection by the rest of the country. But um, they, a couple of years after that, 1926, the coal miners finally came to came to strike. They had been put off for years and years and years, um, seeking a livable wage at reasonable hours. And in the summer of 1925, um, the government backed down yet again and gave them a six-month extension so that in March, in, I'm sorry, the end of April in 1926, um, their extension was coming to an end the coal miners were vowed to bring the mine owners to their knees. And all the other miners, all the other unions went out on strike too um, with the avowed intention of bringing the upper classes down. And of course, the upper classes, having had six months to put themselves together, were equally determined that the working class would be put back in their places. And there's various gorgeous phrases like, you know, like dogs being sent back to their kennels. We must get the working class in its place. You know, you know the sort of thing that creates, creates you know, the back of your neck just turns up in, in modern times. But at those times, that was the language that they, they spoke. And this class warfare was fully expected to erupt into outright revolution in the spring of 1926. They expected that streets would run with blood, that politicians would be hanging from Westminster Bridge, and that um, the entire country would be taken over by these um, communist Bolshevik um, sympathizers with Mother Russia, very close on the other side of Europe. Into this comes your main character. My yank. <laughs> Your yank. <laughs> and he's a really likable guy, but he also has a lot of interesting modern associations a as we read him. Uh, um, his name is Harris Stuyvesant, and he's more than just a, a club-footed uh, yank. He, he's, a, he's a smart guy, isn't he? There are a few of us. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's, he's very much an American, um, and he comes into England expecting. He doesn't really understand that England is about to erupt in, in so many ways, but he, he sort of comes over thinking that England will be just a little tea party and he'll get his information about this terrorist that he's looking for and, and go home again back to New York and his Bureau of Investigation. This, of course, is just... The, this is when J. Edgar Hoover has just come into his long, long rule of the FBI. It's hard to believe. I mean, the entire century is spanned by that man. But anyway. At 24. Uh, at the age of 24, that's scary. I know. I know. <laughs> A man just, yes. The FBI and the entire country was shaped by that one man. And this is before he was wearing women's clothes. Too, so. <laughs> well, do we know that for a fact? <laughs> well, <laughs> one doesn't know. Um but yeah, Harris Stuyvesant comes over on the search for his own terrorist and lands up to his neck in this this growing revolution in 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 Britain. So <laughs> to his surprise. One of the things I liked about Harris Stuyvesant is that uh we see the the beginnings of 
we think now that we have really advanced police science and we have all this 21st century technology and 21st century psychology as well, but he has it back then. He, he, the, the stuff he, the way he talks, the way he works, works uh, the people he meets, and in particular the one very odious man who we will talk about at length, um, is a, he's, he's an actor and he's a manipulator and he's also a, a criminal profiler. And did you think of him in that way? Well, one of the things that, that I think we forget under the influence of fictional television programs such as CSI <clears throat> is that forensic um, laboratory work, for the most part, does not solve a crime. It proves a crime. So that by the time, <clears throat> by the time most investigators have solved the crime, um, the backup in the labs means that by the time it comes to court, they might have some information. But, you know, 90% of investigations are solved by talking to people, by making notes of um, who was where, when, and following up things that don't match. For the most part, modern investigation is, is really the same as it was 100 years ago. It's just that when you when you know who done it, you can then nail it down in court by DNA evidence, by fingerprints, by any kind of analysis like that. So, yeah, the science of modern crime investigation um, is not really that much forwarder when it comes to solving the crime, but proving it, yeah. And one of the things I, I really liked about the way that Harris works is that he, he does a great job at, at playing dumb. And, and you can, and, and this comes to the, to the contrast. One of the things that, that this book works around, I think, is the, the contrast between uh, English and U.S. perceptions of, of just the world itself. Here in the U.S., we have a history that's even now, what, you know, maybe 250 years. It's not very deep. I mean, in England, they have a lot of deep, deep history that we in Americans can't really even wrap our brains around. Yes, the, the, the English, when you, they're told someone is studying uh, American history, their reaction is, well, that shouldn't take you long. <laughs> 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 but if you have, for example, in, in this book, uh, in Touchstone, you have a family who's central to the plot, who've lived in the same house for you know half a millennium. Um, they have been integral in all of the major decisions and battles and um, governments since the, the family was given its title in whatever year it was. I, I can't remember. <laughs> but um, it, it's very different from the American point of view to, to realize that you are pushing against, um, you know, a thousand years of established history, not just history in the edges. And, and we also have the next character. One of the things that this book has four really strong, just grab you and keep you entranced, you know, men around whom the plot 
involves, and we have and two women and two women, Come on. very beautiful women. Yes, six major characters, and and that's a, a writing a novel with six major characters. That's kind of a that's difficult, isn't it? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, not so much writing it, but certainly rewriting it. <laughs> yeah, the rewrite process to get the balance because I wanted each of them to have a completely distinct voice. I wanted them to have equal. Not time, but um, authority in the in the plot, and to have the machinery of six different voices meshing together along with the storyline um, took took a lot of doing. Yeah. Could you talk about? Um, it took you a while to, to to write this book, and I'm wondering, did all these characters, when you conceived of the book, did you know who all? everybody was going to be and then send the, <laughs> set them out against each other or did they start to like show themselves as as the writing unfolded yeah do i do i know what i'm doing when i start a book no basically no um <clears throat> well i knew i knew it was going to be a big book it not necessarily in the sense of pages although it has become that as well but i i knew that i wanted it to be a complex story. And I knew there would be at least five or six major characters from from the beginning. Um, that each one actually has his or her voice in there um, was not something I I had realized at the beginning would be necessary. But as I was writing it, realized, yeah, I, I want this to happen. I want, um, instead of, for the most part in my books, you've got two or three main characters um, and a lot of supporting staff, as it were, but the uh, the business of writing six fully-fledged individuals, all of whom um, have their, their time in the sun, is it's not something I'd recommend for mild entertainment, no, no. And it, it took me, I normally do a book a year, and I didn't have a book out in 2007. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, this one was really worth the wait. It, it, I think it's you. just gloriously complex. It's very immersive and also incredibly gripping and compelling. And that's a hard uh, balance to keep. It, could you talk a little bit about just um, well? Did you uh, did you out did you have an outline of where you wanted to go? Or, no, no. No, I I almost never know where I'm going when I start a book. Oh, good, good, good. <laughs> <laughs> very rarely. Um, the the business of trying to decide what personality, I guess you'd say, your book has from the beginning um, is always tricky because if you want to write a low-key English investigative novel, um, it's y- you have to come at it from one point. Uh, the series that I do with Mary Russell and Sherlock Holmes for example, they're very tongue-in-cheek, and there's a kind of humor in them that um, that is deliberate and very low-key, but has to be there from the beginning. The various um, standalones that I've done, similarly, I want to know what the flavor is going to be before I get into them. And with this book, I knew that I wanted it to be very edgy. I wanted it to be dominated by the wrangling masculine personalities in the book. So that, among other things, I, um, I, I approached it by reading a lot of boy books. 
I, I immersed myself in, in the world of the thriller. Um, you know, I read my way through, reread my way through um, Lee Child's stuff, his Jack Reacher, and uh, Bob Crace, and, uh, you know, a whole bunch of real guy writers. Because I wanted my guy, Stuyvesant, you know, this, this guy out of New York, I wanted him to swagger. I wanted to him to have fists, things that I don't really do. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't usually get in fist fights, Rick. Really, I don't. Um, but I wanted that flavor of him uh, coming in as a complete brash yank outsider into this extremely complex situation um, and to make as many mistakes as he as he goes along his way, as he possibly can. Now, a book like this that has a lot of history in it, and, and there's a lot of really fascinating aspects of history in it, um, I presume requires quite a bit of research and more than a, a, a small amount of entertaining travel. It's always tough when people say, oh, I learned so much from your books, because you have to point out to them that, you know, I lie for a living. <laughs> it's fiction. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. It didn't happen quite this way, but yeah, it it involved a lot of um, a lot of the fun kind of research, um, things like biographies of the prime minister um, Stanley Baldwin, and you know, autobiographies of prominent union people, um, things things like that that. Normal people don't have any particular excuse for reading, but you know I have to read them because that it's my job, you know. <laughs> and yeah, I I have been there. I didn't specifically go to England this time uh, with the book in mind. I've been there any number of times before, but um, most of the areas I was writing about here I had been to. I did know that I wanted to write a major section of it in Cornwall, and I'd only sort of ventured around the edges of Cornwall before. So my daughter and I spent, um, oh, 10 days, two weeks um, wandering around Cornwall. We stayed in a, in a bed and breakfast that was out kind of in the area where um, Bennett Gray lives, one of the characters, and marched up and down the hillsides and saw, for example, this, uh, he has a, a prehistoric circular hut village near his, his house. And that's based on a place that, that we saw there. So I think you really, when you're writing about a place that is important enough to almost become a character, such as these two areas in Touchstone, you really have to go and spend some time there and to, you know, what does it smell like? What do the people look like? What does the sky look like? Um, how far is the sea from here? What does the air smell like? Um, before you really can settle down and write the thing. So yeah, I, 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 I've been there. And that's something else I was going to mention what, what that you said was that the, the places in this book are also characters ranking almost equally with, with these uh, boisterous men yeah. and lovely women you have. Well, they I love you in London. Yeah. It's just so, it's so steampunk. <laughs> Steampunk, huh? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> not not a phrase I'd thought to apply to it, but yeah. Um, yes, the I I had actually had the book set in um, 
in three different areas outside London at the beginning because there was this island off the coast of, of Devon and Cornwall that I just really, really wanted to use. But it interrupted the flow of the narrative <clears throat> far too much. So I, I put that off for another book. We'll set another book there. But, yeah, this one, I wanted the areas that the book was set in to reflect not only the action but the personalities of the individuals. So that when Bennett Gray, who is very English, um, needs to get as far away from home as he possibly can, um, he has two choices. One of them is <coughs> Land's End in Cornwall, and the other is <laughs> John O'Groats up in the very north of Scotland. And that just was too cold for me. <laughs> so, so I thought Land's End was much better. And, and Cornwall is a fascinating, very raw and primitive, very remote from the rest of Engl England. And Austere uh, is the way you paint it. <coughs> I, yeah. I, I mm -hmm. th and, and the visual, the, your uh, visual landscape writing is, is really good in this book. I mean, I could really see the place where he lived in that track where they come down in the mud and just the, the pristine blue skies. It, it was strikingly uh, striking imagery. Good. Yeah, thank you. Um, and the, the, the English one as well, Hurley House, is very, very loosely based on a place that's in Gloucestershire, um, and, and a very old house called Owlpen Manor, which, if you're interested, has, a, has its website, and you can look at it. Um, this is, Hurley House is not the same, but it's very loosely um, patterned on the structure and the, um, the landscape area. So, did you did you go to Owlpen? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And is it? Can you stay there? I think now it is open. At the time, it had just been taken over by new owners, and I think it was. Uh, I think they were talking about setting it up for guests, but they hadn't yet. But there's a there's a fabulous um, <coughs> a fabulous Art Deco um, chapel that's not not the same as the chapel in Hurley House, but is. Extraordinary. It's like walking inside a a uh, Indian box or something. It's blues and golds and all the rest of it. It's a gorgeous place. The the writing in this novel is is nicely detailed, and uh, I wonder if you talk about like this kind the this kind of jazz age poetry. I think almost in, that you kind of infuse your, your prose with. Did, did you read some of the, the fiction of the time to, to help research this book? Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's, <laughs> there's nothing like getting in the flavor of the time by uh, like reading some of the bad novels from the period. I mean, <clears throat> something like, uh, there's a book called The Green Hat by Michael Arlen. It's just a terrible, just a terrible novel. It was a bestseller for weeks and weeks and weeks, and it was just awful. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that much more helpful than, you know, real literature. Real literature, nah, far too timeless. <laughs> <laughs> but The Green Hat, mm, just my kind of thing for this book. And you, you need to have the flavor of, of the talk, the, all, the, um, all the ephemeral stuff that by the 30s had already become, you know, kind of embarrassing. Sort of like the 60s and 70s in, in our time. I mean, in the 60s, everything was groovy and far out and oh, <laughs> the rest of it. But by the 70s, things had settled down a bit more. And that was, I think, very similar. I, I mean, as a child of the 60s, I feel very at home in the 20s. 
but you might not feel at home if you are in the presence of one Aldous Carstairs. Aldous Carstairs. Just, uh, His name needed to kind of slither <laughs> onto the page, don't you think? Oh, yeah, no, and, and he's a, a wonderful character, uh, literally Machiavellian. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that was kind of fun to, to bring in the Machiavelli stuff without <clears throat> making him seem artificial, so yeah. Did you reread your Prince, The Prince, just because? Uh, I did. You did. I did, and <laughs> and in fact um, got a, a bilingual, you know, the the Italian on one side and the English on the other, oh, so I could of piece course. it together. I I don't speak <laughs> Italian, but you know anyone who knows any Spanish or French can can manage, on the page anyway. So yeah, yeah, it was very interesting. Uh, this character um, would be just right at home in the Department of Homeland Security. <laughs> and I think that's quite deliberate. Yeah. And, of course, one of the things about this period in the 20s, the late 20s in England, is that you see the beginnings of British fascism. Um, and, and, of course, in Germany it's rising up too. But the British fascism was, um, was a very powerful, powerful group. And then if, if Britain hadn't ended up going to war against Hitler, um, it probably would have made much bigger inroads into the country than it than it in the end did. But Mosley and the rest of them you know, were central to the 30s British politics. And, and you talk about something <coughs> called the, and, and I love this name, an organization, the Organization for the Maintenance of Supplies. Was there such a thing? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's and, uh, frightening. And the OMS was definitely like um, Homeland Security. It had, uh, you know, it had its own... Um, semi-governmental groups that um, it was a basically vigilantism and they organized vigilantes to to come and take over the cities um, when these miners got out of hand which they obviously expected them to do and and you do a, a fine job creating a sympathy for the devil are these uh, at the time anarchists we now call them terrorists uh, but the things they were fighting for are things that we now take in our employment lives for granted and back then they were they were not not for granted <laughs> they were not uh, allowed one of the things that i had in mind as i was writing this book was that period um shortly after september 11th um, when this country was asking itself why. Uh, I mean, that, that period was lamentably brief when we honestly looked at the world and said, what is it about the United States that makes people want to do this to us? And that lasted very, very few days. I mean, within, within a month, we were them and us again. And I think that's too bad. I think that not asking that question is a real mistake because it's a valid question. And by, by putting that question in 1926 in England instead and treating it fictionally, um, it allows me to bring it to the fore. You know, my terrorists have valid complaints um, in Touchstone. 
And if you want to, you know, take it from there and bring it into the 21st century, that's up to the reader. But in Touchstone, in 1926, um, there are there are reasons that these people um, are striking out with violence. And it's it's an interesting effect too for for the reader or for the 21st century reader. It's like just having the camera swung right around behind you, and and you get that feeling that uh, Stuyvesant at one point experiences of you know eyes on the back of your neck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of the uh, of course the one the central character for the novel Bennett Gray is a really fascinating uh, creation, and I think in many ways, almost science fictional. Uh, this is, of course, my own bias, maybe, but I think there's a lot of, uh, you put a lot of, of almost speculative fiction uh, perspectives in this book. It's it's very tricky when you're doing a, a suspense novel or a thriller, um, and you're bringing in something like this. They call it the woo-woo factor in publishing. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, the woo-woo factor is those 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 books that have you know people with vampire tendencies or who who solves the crime because they can you know read the cards or that kind of that's the woo woo factor and touchstone i had to continually ask myself and my editor who was extremely helpful and um, you know from beginning to end with this i had to i had to ask um is this getting to the point where it gets into speculative fiction? Because what happens is Bennett Gray is <clears throat> transformed by his injuries in the Great War, in the First World War. And he becomes hypersensitive to everything around him. It's similar in ways to the book that came out roughly the same time um, Blink by Malcolm Gladwell, where he talks about how you can know something instantaneously without knowing why you know it. And that's what Gray does. He is a, a human touchstone. He knows without pausing to analyze um, body language and um, breathing patterns that he overhears. You know, all this the minute bits of evidence that normal people can't pick up. Bennett Gray can because he is so extremely sensitive. And it enables him to tell the truth about an object or a person. Um, when he's told a lie, he knows because he can see all the little signs that are too subtle for normal people to bother with. And, and this, there's, a, there's a scene early on in the book that very much uh, stems from your well-learned experience with Mr. Holmes, where uh, Bennett <laughs> looks at a at a case that uh, Stuyvesant has and, and tells him a bunch of stuff, and I was was thinking that yeah, you you were working from it from experience there. <laughs> it was it was a question that I asked my editor early on was that um, I really didn't want Bennett Gray to become another Sherlock Holmes. I mean, mm -hmm. this is not where I was going with the with the story, and I needed to be 
on the lookout for that because I mean I've already got two of them. <laughs> <laughs> I have I have Holmes and I have Mary Russell and honestly I really didn't want a third one. Um, so that what what Gray does is is a different kind of thing. But yeah, it is analysis based on um, on on seeing things and hearing things and smelling them. Well, this is something that, that one of the things that really interests me about this is that this is something that right now the Department of Homeland Security, and boy, there are, are no, it's the TSA, Transport Security Authority, is now doing in that um, there's a guy, and I can't recall his name, who was, uh, had analyzed all the motions of the human face, and you can read these micro gestures. If you're, if you're well enough trained, you really can achieve some of these effects of, of Bennett Gray, of micro gestures of what there's, you know, only so many muscles in the human face and, and the muscles get moved by various emotions. And you can test these kind of micro gestures. And that's what the TSA is now, uh, is now using. Much, you can imagine the results that that's going to achieve. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can. Uh, the the old false positive problem. Yeah, I'm I'm sorry. I'm not convinced, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things that, that that's interesting too in, in when you look at a, a a book that's set a mirror eighty years ago is the uh, the advances of medical science and what they called it then, what we call it now. And from shell shocked to PTSD. Mm-hmm. Yeah, shell shock was a thing. <clears throat> it was a phenomenon of the Great War, um, because the the way the war was fought, um, men hunkered down in trenches for week on end, <clears throat> underneath the opposing guns and um, and under your own artillery and and behind you, meant that. Men's nerves were just shattered. And, uh, in fact, I wrote a book a number of years ago about a young officer whose nerves were destroyed by that. And um, a lot of them were executed because they, they, couldn't, they couldn't pick up their gun and go out again. And um, especially the uh, enlisted men. Um, you, you can't have an enlisted man refuse to pick up his gun. That just doesn't do. And so you... You hold a quick trial and execute him. Um, those who were officers were perhaps better off because they got to end up in places like the um, the early um, mental institutions run by, for example, Rivers was the, the, the big one, who um, tried to treat shell shock as an actual physical ailment as a result on the nerves of these rolling barrages and look at what you could do to help somebody who, who, whose nerves were just completely demolished. Um, so that it was not until the Great War and the aftermath of the Great War that shell shock became a phenomenon and became an identifiable problem. In, of course, we call it in post-Vietnam, we call it PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, it's a slightly different thing, but it's basically the same. Um, that is that the human body and mind can only take so much stress and so many traumas before um, trying to get away from it in any way it can. Uh, could you 
explain the title of the book? A touchstone is a, <clears throat> a kind of soft stone that is used to prove the quality of gold or silver. So that if you have a piece of gold and you want to, uh, to demonstrate its purity, if you rub it against a touchstone, you'll get a mark. And if it's not a pure piece of gold, or if it's um, iron pyrite instead, which looks like gold, it won't leave a mark. Um, Bennett Gray is a human touchstone. Um, one of the, the things uh, that I think is makes him such, a, such an interesting character is the, the contrast when we when we talk about him as a being sensitive and a touchstone, we think of little, maybe the little guy and uh, you know just the little shrinky guy. But he he he's not that, is he? It's it's hard to write about a man who has um, a weakness without making him weak, and I didn't want him to be that. I mean, he has this. Um, these things that have happened to him, but he's not a victim. They, he has these um, these abilities and talents that render life almost impossible for him, but he nonetheless manages to keep keep on his way. And I think that that is true of um, of most victims of PTSD. Um, they manage to hang together. Um, piecing their life back together, and showed an amazing amount of courage in daily life. And that's what Bennett Gray manages to do. And as for courage, the, the women in this book exhibit quite a bit of it, and particularly with uh, regards to you know, their services. And so I'd kind of like to talk about some of the background of what they're doing and its ties you know, to the uh, depths of, of evil communism. <laughs> Well, of course, the, the teens and 20s were a great time for women and women's rights in, in England. I mean, it was, in, again, it's very similar to the 60s in the advance of women's rights. Um, in 1926, you, have, um, you, ha you don't yet have a full vote that didn't come until later in the 20s for women. But women over the age of, I think it was 27 or 28, were given the vote by, before then. I mean, the, those women could vote. Younger women could not. But um, women were central in a lot of ways in British politics and, um, and certainly in anything that had to do with the service organizations. That is, um, I, I mean, the characters, the two women characters in this book run a service for women in, in London mostly, um, the East End, helping poor women. And that was something that you found very few men got involved with unless they were religious leaders, but a lot of women did. Could you talk about the, were, were the, I think in this book that's Look Forward, is it? Is that, is that right? Mm -hmm. is that, was that a real organization? No. No, 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 okay. <laughs> uh, no. Tell us. I, I lie. I lie. <laughs> you lie. I do. I <laughs> lie this for fiction? a living. I tell you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is fiction. Uh -huh. um, tell us a little bit about uh, some of those uh, organizations that it was was based on. I'm uh, a, little, a little bit more. I, I find this really interesting that that uh, 
how far back we've come. <laughs> we, we seem to have ratcheted back. There don't seem to be a lot of these kind of equivalents anymore. What happened to them? Well, one of the things that's quite interesting um, is that given the, the British um, social structure, is that you quite often would find that it was the aristocratic women or the certainly the upper-class women who would become involved in this. And it's funny to see these pictures of, um, you know, the, the queen in the 20s wandering down, and, and the, they'll have a parade for her down in this appallingly poverty-stricken area in the, in the east end of London. And here's all these w women turn out, and they, you know, scrub their children, and here's the queen, you know, coming through with a fancy hat and all the rest of it. And, and there's no disconnect there. I mean, the, the, they are both um, a part of British society and equally at home there. But the, the women who quite often helped out in these... Um, these organizations um, were often people such as Laura and, and Sarah, the two characters in the book, um, middle and upper middle um, class women and, and, and blue bloods who would look around themselves and s decide, I have a responsibility to my history and to my country, and this is what I can do. And this might also be as a result of living in the rather surreal uh, circumstances of an English country manor. Yes, but even even a country manor, you were a part of the machinery. I mean, they, they it was very carefully laid out so that you didn't see the servants and you didn't, you know, step on each other's areas. But you were always aware that your servants had a home life and that your farmers had children. Because you saw them. I mean, you went out for a ride on your horse and you saw all of your tenant farmers along the way. Um, in the best tradition of the, the country house, the manor house, there was a sense that we were all a part of this manor. And yes, some of us lived in the manor house and owned it. And yes, some of us, you know, kept the kept the stock from straying. But we were all a part of it, and it's all the machinery. Obviously, they didn't all function that smoothly, and uh, there was a lot of um, imbalance in th that I think that the 20s went away to, towards redressing. But nonetheless, at, at its best, the system functioned very humanely. As a, a mystery, especially as a country house mystery, this deviates yeah, <laughs> fairly seriously from the from the country house, the the typical country house mystery. We don't have a body in the library, do we? <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, could you talk about uh, um, when you were playing with the country house aspect of it? It, it seemed like you had a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I usually do have fun with what I do. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a job I enjoy. Is this writing gig? Um. Yeah, I mean, when you when you're taking on a um, an established subgenre and doing your own thing with it, it, it helps to know the subgenre. And obviously, I've I've read the you know enough of the Agatha Agatha Christie that I can talk about her. She's not my favorite writer, but 
I've read a number of them. And, and of course, Dorothy Sayers writes a lot about this sort of um, time and, and the people involved. So, yeah, it helps to know what, what I'm not doing with there. Um, I think there was, there was one book, I think it may have been the first of the Russell books, where she's outraged to find that the butler did it. Uh, the other thing that I I found interesting was uh, in in Stuyvesant's background the history of the FBI I mean there's all sorts of uh, really great little corners of this book that that seem open to a lot more exploration and and I'm wondering and you've got some nice characters here some of whom even survive. Yeah, some of whom actually survive, <laughs> and, and I'm wondering if we're if we're going to get to uh, see them again in other circumstances. Well, it's it's interesting because the this book started out in my mind very clearly as a as a standalone, and and in fact I I killed off enough of the people that it really <laughs> had had to be a standalone. Um, in conversations with my editor, I, I sort of drew down the body count considerably, but also began to think, you know, some of these people are really interesting, and the dynamic of what was going on between them and what was going on at the time is, it, there's a richness there that I don't necessarily want to just completely cut off. So yeah. It's possible that this will be the first in a series. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how long the series will be, but, you know, three, three, four books spanning the period of late 20s, mid-30s. be very interesting. And get, you'll get to go out to your island, I hope. Yes, yes, <laughs> I, must, I must get back to my island. <laughs> and and have you, what are you working on right now? I'm working on Mary Russell number nine, which is... The working title is The Language of Bees. It's about bees and bohemians. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know Sherlock Holmes was a, was a beekeeper. And, and yes. Your books started out as a bee, with bees, so it's nice to see you return to them. Well, Did the last couple of those books have been outside the area. I mean, I've had, the game was set in India. Locked Rooms was set in California, and then there was a section in the Art of Detection that was also set in California. So they've been out, they've been away from home too long, and I really thought Mrs. Hudson shouldn't be asked to care for the beehives as well as everything else, so they need to go home. Uh, do you keep bees? I do not keep bees. You could. I, I, I should, I suppose. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I believe so. <laughs> We've been speaking with Laurie King. Her new book is called Touchstone. Thank you for joining me, Laurie. Thank you. It's been fun. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thank you.